Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the show. Cameron English here with you, Director of Biosciences at the American Council on Science and Health, joined again by my intrepid colleague, Dr. Chuck Dinnerstein, our Director of Medicine. Chuck, what's going on? How are you? I'm great. How are you doing today? I'm good. Hey, before we get into our stories, I had a random question for you. I started rewatching my favorite medical show, Scrubs, again, and the running theme on that show is that, well, one of them is that surgeons and internists don't like psychiatrists. They think they're fake doctors. I'm wondering, is there any truth to that in the real world? Is there sort of a rivalry between these, these disciplines? Uh, there's definitely a rivalry between the disciplines. There's a there's a, a pecking order or a food chain, depending on which way you look at it. And everybody will tell you that their specialty is at the top of the food chain, though. And the reality is that the surgeons are, as anybody knows. <laughs> um, um, but I, I, I've actually seen more competitive feelings between um, the surgeons and the internists that do interventions, particularly the cardiologists, you know, uh, there's a, there's a lot of give and take between those two groups about who actually um, has the most important organ to be treating and therefore uh, is the most important person. <laughs> you know, so. Oh, that's it's, funny, man. Cause I, in the show, there's multiple scenes where you'll see an internist talking to a psychiatrist and going, Oh, I can't imagine going into a fake specialty after medical school. What, what led you to that decision? <laughs> well, it, it, it's funny. To, to tell the truth, I, when I went to medical school, I planned on being a psychiatrist. That was my original plan. But as my wife would point out, luckily I didn't do that because we would be living over somebody's garage, living hand to mouth, because I just have no ability as a psychiatrist. But the thing that I found most fascinating is mid life career changes, the most common change is between psychiatry and surgery and surgery and psychiatry. Really? Yeah. Not, not really uh, two specialties that you would think on the surface had a lot in common, but um, actually they, they really do in, in, in a number of ways, not so much in terms of that hands-on active part um, but there are other, other qualities about being a surgeon or a psychiatrist that are very similar. Well, maybe one day we can have a conversation about that. I would just love to know how you get tired of slicing people up and instead you want to fix their brains. So maybe, maybe we'll have to talk about that sometime, but okay, in any well, case, we, no. go ahead, go ahead. I didn't mean to cut you off. No, no, we can always talk about it on Monday. <laughs> All right. All right. Well, we've got two stories to talk about. Neither of them have to do with uh, surgery or psychiatry. Not really, anyway. So this first one Chuck wrote, it's called One Toke Over the Median, Driving Stoned. We've got some new data coming in on how uh, marijuana legalization has impacted uh uh, auto, automobile accidents. We're going to dive into that. And then I wrote a story uh, late last week called Climate Anxious College Students Troubled by Pesticides Need a Science Lesson. So you can tell that's going to be a very gentle one. But Chuck, let's let's start with this this first story you wrote. Tell us about this. Are, 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 do we have anything to be concerned about here? Well, it's unclear. That's going to be the bottom line to the story. Um, the study looked at Western states where they had legalized recreational marijuana, not medicinal marijuana. Um, so it was open to a larger public. Now, there is no um, test that can be done uh, 
at the point of, that you're stopped by a policeman to see whether you're under the influence of marijuana. That makes it much more difficult to determine who's driving under the influence. So there are a lot of other kind of cognitive tests that people have used to look at it. So you can put that grain of salt in to begin with. But what the study looked at basically was whether there was an increase in the number of motor vehicle accidents uh, in the state once marijuana legalization had taken place with the assumption that all the other parameters of accidents would hold uh, the same, meaning that they had a similar population of uh, drunk drivers still driving on the roads, that there was not a, a large construction of roads that were more difficult to navigate, like uh, rural roads that were uh, don't have the streetlights and so on and so forth. And what they showed was that in the states that had legalized marijuana compared to the control states in the West, there was about a 4 or a 5% increase in the number of injuries or fatal crashes over um, time. So they, they point to that to, to suggest that there's certainly the possibility that marijuana um, is a contributory factor in the rise in accidents. Um, they, they found that there was um, also some variation in terms of this, Colorado led the way in terms of uh, injury crashes by about 20% increase compared to their baseline or compared to the control group and about a 1.5% increase in fatalities. California, which is a larger state, and they, they corrected everything to reflect population, only saw about a 6% increase in uh, crash injuries. So anyway, I did in the article also refer back to a piece I had written back in December 2020 where they uh, took people and got them high and put them in one of the little driver trainers. I don't know whether I'm aging myself by saying that's one of the little, you know, cars that you use to learn how to go through your driver education class. <laughs> and what they, they discovered was that even though as the urban myths is true, that people drive slower and more carefully, whether to avoid being pulled over, because that's the way their perceptions change. They did have an increase in the amount of weaving uh, of the car. They just didn't keep it straight in line uh, once they were un under the influence of a pot. And that that lasted for, you know, anywhere from an hour to two hours. So th there's something to be said. The buzz driving is bad driving. And, you know, now that I'm sitting here in New York and New York has now uh, legalized recreational marijuana, there's a lot of PSAs that are talking about um, marijuana, saying that you know, marijuana affects the way you listen to music, it affects the way you uh, talk to your friends, it also affects how you drive. And they're just trying to get people to recognize that um, lighten up and then getting behind the wheel is probably not a good idea. Yeah, that's interesting. So do you think that's just sort of preparation on their part? They're trying to get out in front of any additional crashes that may occur? Or are they looking at data like this and saying, we might have a problem on our hands, we need to start warning people against smoking pot and then driving? I think I think it's a combination of both. I think that, they, you know, they have no great enforcement mechanism because it's not like um, 
getting pulled over uh, and being intoxicated from alcohol. They, there is no blood level of marijuana that, that they can get um, to determine that you're, you know, under the influence at the time. So I said, there's a number of cognitive tests, you know, very similar to, you know, walking a straight line. They can ask you questions, but it's going to be very tough for them to take you into court and say, well, his eyes were bloodshot and he was going 20 and a 30, you know? Um, uh, So I I think that they're doing the best that they can to, uh, to minimize the number of people that decide to um, drive and smoke. Though I would, I would think in a state like New York, where weed has not been legalized, but it has never been a has not been a uh, crime that the police would arrest you for in the last ten or twelve years, um, that they were not going to see a significant change because most people um, that would be taking advantage of legalized marijuana have been taking advantage of illegal marijuana for for many years. I mean, I can remember. Back when I was a uh, God, an an intern in the Bronx, you know, and they would bring people in, and they would find, you know, the the cops would bring them in because they needed uh, something sewn up, and they would find, you know, joints on them. They just throw them away. It just wasn't worth booking them. (laughs) Over that, they had bigger prey to worry about. Yeah, I can imagine in a giant city like that. So, looking at these numbers. Can we say anything with any confidence? Because, and this is not the fault of the researchers, but as you alluded to, there's so many variables that could affect someone's driving behavior. Obviously, marijuana would be one of them, but you know, you talked about uh, you know speed limits. You talked about the age of the drivers. You talked about you know appropriate lighting along the road in rural parts of the country, and so forth. And it, it just goes on and on. You know, maybe someone got in a fight with their spouse the day that they got in a car wreck. And they also happen to smoke some weed. You know, how do you disentangle those effects uh, in order to understand this? So, so talk about that. How do we know this with confidence if we do? Um, well, it, it's, a, it's what they call a difference in different studies. So it, the numbers are reliable. The interpretation of them um, is where the, the ambiguity comes in. So I, I, w- I would think to say that there's certainly a signal in there that uh, legalizing marijuana may result in increased um, motor vehicle problems. The other piece that you you need to add into this is the increasing potency of the products that are now available. You know, and I think that uh, any number of articles in the last month or two on the website have really been looking at the fact that. Um, Today's legalized marijuana is not um, the stuff that we were token 30 years ago. Um, it has, has all the benefits now of uh, culture and farming. It hasn't had CRISPR applied to it yet. <laughs> and so we don't have to worry about any GMO pot. It's still natural. But, but you know, the, uh, the people that are, the commercial enterprises that are doing this are cranking up um, the THC in the product and they're doing what they you know, can to deliver a, a, a more potent product at a, at a lower price point. It, it's, it's a market kind of thing. So I, I, I think that there's a signal there. We need to pay attention to the signal and, and see what happens. But I wouldn't take the, the, the absolute numbers and say, oh, yeah, it's absolutely going on. 
we have yet to prove that. Yeah, fascinating stuff. And out here in California, pot's been legal for a while. And not only have they made it more potent, but they've put it in everything. Um, I don't partake myself, not a fan, doesn't agree with me. But I have I have friends who um, use, use a breakfast syrup that has THC in it. And, of course, gummy bears and uh, even drink flavorings. <laughs> you know, they put it in everything. So I don't even know how you would track this. I mean, it, as you said, the stuff that, you know, maybe you and your friends would smoke at a Grateful Dead concert, that's that's gone. That's lost to history. This stuff now is way stronger. So I, I don't even know how you would how you would monitor that, frankly. I don't, I don't think that there there is a way. I think, you know, this is one of those times. The legalization is going to move forward no matter what. It's, it's a revenue source to the states that are looking for uh, a revenue. It's a syntax. So they're going to like that. Um, and they, and I got a, it's a, it's an interesting economic marketplace. Again, uh, there was a, there was an ad this week, ice T, um, former rapper, now TV star on, you know, <laughs> on law and order <laughs> special victims <laughs> unit is opening up a dispensary with, uh, an ex play mate model in Jersey city. I mean, you can't make this stuff up. Snoop Dogg has Snoop Dogg. Um, who's doing those commercials now with Marcus Stewart is his huge into this business. He has millions and millions of dollars from, from the legalized marijuana business. I just love the world we live in Chuck. What a fascinating time to be alive. Uh, oh yeah. Parenthetically, I was, uh, dishing out some Cheerios to my young son today, and you'll never guess who was hyping the heart health benefits of Cheerios on the back of the box. Ice no. tea. <laughs> there we see. He's everywhere, bringing health to us all. <laughs> you got pain relief. You got whole grains for heart health, and oh, I don't know what else yeah. he's selling. He's Bring trying that cholesterol to prevent- down, baby. <laughs> all right. All right. Well, there you go, folks. We don't know too much yet. We have some data coming in, but it's just going to take time. And with that, let's talk, Chuck, a little bit about uh, climate-anxious college students. I didn't know this was a thing, but apparently there's someone is diagnosing people with climate anxiety, which is a fear of impending doom caused by climate disaster. This is apparently a real, I don't know if it's technically a diagnosis. I don't think you'll find it in the DSM, but this seems to be a, <laughs> a thing for some people. And uh, this is a story, I, I believe it was... Um, it's a paper that is under uh, U.S. News and World Report, and they're talking about college students around the country who um, are just mortified by a climate change disaster coming. And the way that they're dealing with the stress that that induces is they're pulling weeds around campus and they're protesting the use of synthetic pesticides uh, at their schools. And this is, you know... What, what what exactly the impact of this is supposed to be, I'm not sure. Apparently, it just makes them uh, feel good. But the issue that, that concerned me is that they're protesting a technology that's actually quite useful. And if you want to look at it in terms of climate benefits, they're enormous. There's just no doubt about this. The research is pr- pretty clear because when farmers can use um, synthetic herbicides, for example, of course, glyphosate is the big one everyone's familiar with, but atrazine would be another example. When you can use these kinds of chemicals, um, you can control your weeds very effectively if you're a farmer, 
but then you don't have to till your field nearly as much or maybe at all even, uh, which allows you to keep more carbon in the soil. And then it reduces your fuel use. And of course, everybody knows that fossil fuels emit carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. So on balance, this is a really good development. And there was one study from a couple of years ago, they found that uh, this particular benefit of keeping carbon out of the atmosphere from synthetic uh, herbicides, it was the equivalent of keeping like 15 million cars off the road for, for the period of time that this was in effect. Um, so it's an enormous benefit. So that was my first concern about th this article, the framing from the, from the author and then from the, the concerns of the students. It, it, it's just strange to me that they would protest such an enormously helpful technology. What, what were your thoughts on this when you read it? No, it's, it's odd because I came at it from a completely different point of view. So uh, climate anxiety, I can kind of get my head around that. I mean, I'm old. I'm not going to be here when it's hundred and you know, when it's two degrees warmer. I'm not going to be here to find out. So I can empathize a little bit with people that, that have that concern. But a, a lot of what I read in that article was more um, virtue, virtue signaling than um, actually anything useful. I, th that it's nice that she goes out and, and helps pick the weeds with the grounds crew. Okay, that, that, that's fine. That shows some compassion, I suppose, in some level. But, you know, if she sat down with a... Uh, somebody that was interested in the the ecology of the area you might start asking some questions about why they have all that lawn to begin with and why they're busy watering all that lawn because that's not natural at all you know that's done by the school in order to make the school look uh, more attractive um, to the students to come and go there I mean if you if you're really interested in um, mitigating climate problems, then you should think more about uh, having a, a landscape to your school that's consistent with um, the landscape that's around you. You know, you, you think, about, <laughs> I think about UCLA and all the lawns that were watered in UCLA. Los Angeles is, is, a, is a very dry area. It doesn't need lawns <laughs> in that sense. So I thought it, it's kind of that classic um, thing that we all do when we're in school and wanting to protest, which is to do some small act that does more to make us feel good than it does to contribute to solving the problem. But more importantly, it, it suggests that we really don't understand the underlying problem at all. Stopping the use of pesticides uh, and pulling your own weeds at Brandeis is not going to change anything. And, you know, so the, I was more taken by that than the fact that they'd already bought into the other tropes about um, natural is good, synthetic is bad, and, and all the rest. Yeah, that's a whole nother rabbit hole we could go down. But to your point, I agree with it. I, I think it's there's definitely some validity there. Um and, and I, I don't know if I'm being too cynical here, but I, I almost want to say they're not really that concerned about climate change if they don't know these these facts about how agriculture either contributes to or reduces CO2 emissions. Because it's one thing if you're a climatologist and you know the data really well and you say, look, this is a problem. Here, here's the results we have. Um, you know, 
projecting 50 years down the road, this is what we might consider doing. And then that that's the classic argument that everybody wants to have. But if you're, if you're wrapped up in anxiety around this issue, I would suspect, and maybe I'm wrong here, I would suspect you would look into it a little more deeply if you really care about it. But I think, as you said, this is more of a, this is more of a virtue signal. This is me showing everyone around me how righteous I am and how I'm working for this cause. And the underlying facts don't really matter. And that was the whole other aspect of the story that was fascinating, that, that someone at, at U.S. News and World Report thought that this was newsworthy, <laughs> that you have. Yeah. And, I, and I said entitled college students, and I had one reader take me to task for that. But I was like, well, look, you know, there's people around the world that pick weeds all day. That's all they do. They're young children. They don't get to go to Brandeis or UC Berkeley. They get to pull weeds so they have enough food at the end of the season to eat. And uh, it's backbreaking labor. A lot of them have a lot of, uh, you know, medical complications from bending over in the hot sun for hours at a time. So I just have a hard time sympathizing with people who are just, you know, they're fainting on their couches because they have finals coming up and this is how they deal with the stress. It just, there's a disconnect there and I just have trouble taking it seriously. And I, and I hear you, but you know, I, I feel guilty because of my boomer youth. Um, <laughs> And any of the number of ways that I protested during that period of time with what I thought was a reasonable degree of knowledge, which, as it turns out, was just um, a superficial understanding. And I mean, in, in truth be told, from my point of view, the importance of college is going from being 18 to being 22 and having a chance to grow up and learn a little bit about life outside of the shelter of high school and home. And, and so I don't, I don't mind. I don't feel bad that she's off doing that. But I, you know, uh, as an older person, and, and I, you know, as, as an old boomer now, I guess, come on. This, this, you're just, you're not getting to the depth of the problem. And, you know, but then, as I said, I, I, I have that empathy because I think back on, all the many causes that I was very righteous about um, <laughs> at 22 that I still hold are, are correct, but I, I have a much better understanding of how it fits into a much larger scheme of things and how um, it ain't going to change just because I wanted it to or I pulled some weeds. Right. <laughs> I'm sort of pic- picturing pulled, Chuck now as smoke. an extra in Forrest Gump. <laughs> I, you know, I, I, like I'll tell you, I, you know, it's funny that you say that because it, I, I sometimes feel that there are moments in my life that were Forrest Gump moments because it's just, I'll just leave you with one thought. So, um, so this is 71 ish and I'm at UCLA as an undergraduate and involved in politics and there's a guy that's going to come and talk to us about um, the war. And we wound up going out to Malibu and sitting around. And he's, you know, we're around a campfire at Malibu at seven o'clock in the evening. A bunch of us listening to this guy um, talk about um, the number counts and all the other problems about Vietnam. And the interesting thing was the next week he published the Pentagon Papers. So in some way... <laughs> I feel I have those kind of Forrest Gump moments throughout my life. That's a great story. And it, well, it makes that movie more interesting because there's some scenes in that movie 
you know, he's at the Watergate hotel and, and, you know, he calls the front desk. He's like, there's people in the office over there with flashlights and I can't sleep, <laughs> you know? Yes. That kind of stuff happens, I suppose. But um, in any case, yeah, there, there you go, folks. I, that's just the takeaway I would put on this is that technology as a rule, there are exceptions. Technology as a rule makes our, our society more sustainable. You know, we have a civilization. It's not going to go away anytime soon unless something catastrophic happens. And one of the ways we prevent that is by employing technologies like synthetic pesticides. And they they get lots of hate. You know, the media loves to pile on because corporations make yucky chemicals and so forth. But these are how we feed ourselves, feed people around the world, raise the standard of living. This is how it starts. And so I think that's something uh, important to be aware of. Couldn't agree more. Thanks, Chuck. See, Chuck and I agree. So our consensus here is that uh, pesticides uh, have important uses. So there you go, everybody. We're going to leave it there for the week. If you want to get these stories that we talk about, you can go to our website. It's acsh.org. There's a little button at the top that says subscribe. Click on that. Punch in your email. And several times a week, we will send you the stories that we publish throughout the week. And then you can read them and the most popular ones we look at and then we talk about on the show. So if you want to be a little more informed before you show up, get on that email list. And we'll be back next week with a a whole nother batch of stories. Chuck, as always, thank you so much for joining me. It's always a pleasure. I hope you have a lovely weekend, my friend. You too. Thank you so much. Take care, everybody. See you later. See you later.